Hi folks, my name is Drew Ray, and this is DisasterCast, a podcast for those of us who find major accidents interesting enough to want to hear about them, but depressing enough to want to stop them. Today's episode is about using numbers to talk about safety. More formally, we call this Quantified Risk Assessment, QRA, Probabilistic Risk Assessment, PRA, or Probabilistic Safety Assessment, PSA. They all mean basically the same thing, trying to turn safety risk into a number. Imagine you and I are neighbours. Late one night you hear a cacophony of hammering, welding and cutting from my front lawn. You awake to the sight of the world's ugliest rocket ship. I've decided to join the private industry space race. And as you stand horrified at the fate of the neighbourhood, at least its property values, I rush up to you with a pile of used envelopes covered in scribbles. Don't worry, I say. It's perfectly safe. I have all the calculations right here. Before you even start to look at the envelopes, you're probably going to have doubts. Clearly this is some meaning of the word safe you haven't encountered before. The first question is one of scope. Do I mean it's safe for me as a business owner? Do I mean it's safe for the people who are going to ride in the rocket, or safe for those living in the vicinity? Have I considered just the immediate acute risks or the long-term consequences of building, refuelling and other space industry activities? Have I directly measured the risk at all? Or have I just matched my rocket to some design basis conditions, which specify the correct construction of a rocket to be launched from Florida, but give no consideration to the environmental conditions faced by the north of England? Once we've settled these minor details, you may be interested in my bottom line risk number. Perfectly safe, it turns out, never actually means no risk of harm. It just means that I've decided some arbitrary amount of risk that I consider acceptable, and I hope that you'll consider it acceptable too. So given all of these caveats, I finally come out and I give you a number. I tell you that the chance of the rocket exploding is 10 to the minus 7. That's code for a fraction with a 1 on the top, and a 1 followed by 7 zeros on the bottom. 10 to the minus 7 is 1 in 10 million. Like most numbers, though, it's meaningless, unless you attach units to it. You see, it's a very different proposition if I mean the chance is 10 to the minus 7 per launch, or 10 to the minus 7 per hour, or even 10 to the minus 7 per flight hour. If I only launch once every 10 years, with roughly 10,000 hours in a year, and each launch lasting for a few seconds, then I could claim that a rocket that fails every single launch has a less than 10 to the minus 7 chance of failing per hour. The other fun trick I can do is talk about individual instead of social risk. The rocket blowing up is going to kill you, and it's going to kill me, but we're in a city of 10 million people. So the rocket poses hardly any risk at all to an average individual selected at random, Less than one in a million chance per flight, really. Perfectly safe. Do you begin to get the sense that risk numbers are a great way of making things sound safe, rather than checking that things are safe? You have to be a really savvy consumer of risk data, 
not to have the wool pulled over your eyes by people quoting numbers about risk. Don't worry though, wool blindfolds are perfectly safe, and we've got the numbers to prove it. The idea that we can measure safety risk, and put a number on it, is relatively new. Quantified risk for actuarial purposes has been around for a long, long time, thousands of years. But even though it seems similar, it's an inherently different thing. If you're running an insurance business, you're interested in expected values. An expected value is just multiplying the chance of something happening by the cost or benefit if it happens. So a 50% chance of winning two carrots is the same as a 25% chance of winning four carrots or a 100% chance of winning one carrot. Over a large population of insurance policies, the actuary asks how much premium needs to be set on each policy to cover the expected payouts. Doing those sorts of calculations not only makes sense, it's an essential part of the insurance business. The calculations work for the same reason that insurance works as an idea. Even though accidents are rare and dramatic for an individual policyholder, they are mundane and predictable at a population level. Once you get to major accidents, though, they're rare and dramatic even for the insurer, and so expected value isn't a good metric. That's why in the early 1900s, most writers about safety management were vehement that it was useless to try to put a number of the safety risk. All of that changed with the early civil and military nuclear programs. When they were building Minutemen missiles with nuclear payloads and electronic launch systems, the public wanted some reassurance that World War III wouldn't start accidentally. Enter the brand new technique of fault tree analysis, adding together all of the little things that could go wrong to create a point estimate of the big kablooey. Within a couple of years, quantitative risk assessment was all the rage, and within a decade it became a staple part of almost all safety analysis. How good are we, though, at knowing what the actual likelihood of an accident is? This may be a bit surprising, but even the idea that there is an actual likelihood is kind of controversial. One way of looking at it, and quite a legitimate way, is that the accident is either definitely going to happen, or it's definitely not going to happen. There's no underlying variation, sometimes called aleatoric uncertainty. The only real uncertainty is epistemic. We don't know whether we're living in a universe where the accident is definitely going to happen, or whether we're living in a universe where it isn't. But under this point of view, any estimate of likelihood is really just telling us about our own state of mind not about the underlying reality. The underlying reality is fixed, it's not a probability. All of the uncertainty is in our heads. The alternate way of looking at it is that there is a true accident likelihood underneath all this uncertainty, and we can in principle know what that likelihood is if we work hard enough. Most risk assessment professionals go with the second point of view even if it's just a working model for what's really going on. Let's stick with it ourselves for the moment, and say there's a finite probability that my rocket will explode instead of making it to orbit, and we want to know what that probability is. The first prerequisite is that we need a method of risk assessment that gives us the same answer every time. 
If I run my calculations once and say that the answer is 1 in 100, and then I run them again and say that the answer is 1 in a million, something's clearly going wrong. If that were the case, you couldn't even say for sure that the true answer was somewhere between the two guesses. They're both clearly wrong, so how do you know the true answer isn't more than one or less than the other? We've actually run experiments to see if risk assessment techniques are repeatable in this sense. In a benchmark exercise reported in 2000, national teams were asked to perform risk assessment of an ammonia storage complex. So these are expert teams all provided with the same data about the same complex and situation. The results for some of the scenarios were spread over six orders of magnitude. What that means is the most optimistic team considered the likelihood of something happening to be a million times less than the most pessimistic team. The results were spread fairly evenly between these outliers. And these weren't just guesses or variations between expert judgments. These were carefully calculated results, giving entirely different answers. And this shouldn't really be surprising when you consider how small the numbers are and how little data we have. If I say the chance of something happening is 1 in 10,000 per hour, 10 to the minus 4, I'm saying that it will happen around once a year. For many safety systems, though, the target isn't 10 to the minus 4, it's 10 to the minus 6, or once in 100 years. That's the combined chance of anything serious going wrong. So the probability of any specific type of event has to be much lower, often 10 to the minus 9, or once in 100,000 years. As a rough rule of thumb, to have good confidence to support a probability, you need to test twice that long without incident. So if I test something for 200,000 years and nothing goes wrong, then I can fairly say with confidence that the chance of something going wrong is less than 10 to the minus 9. So obviously safety by testing is never going to get us numbers this good. To get numbers as low as 10 to the minus 9, or even as low as 10 to the minus 6, we're going to have to rely on analysis and calculation rather than testing. But there's nothing magical about safety analysis. It can't create data where there is no data. Most of the time when we talk about analysis, what we're really doing is just combining together small bits of data which we've obtained by testing. So my analysis of whether the engine is going to fail is actually combining together data about all the engine components. And combination of the data in this way tends to increase uncertainty rather than decrease it. So what does all that mean? It means that when I claim that my rocket will explode with probability 10 to the minus 4, my chance of the calculation being wrong is far greater than my predicted likelihood of the accident. It's like the weather forecaster telling you there's a 10% chance of rain, but a 99% chance that the forecast is incorrect. How the heck are you meant to interpret that? The most sensible thing that you'd do is just ignore the forecast. Here's the annoying thing though. I've given you my calculation, and you know the calculation's dodgy. And no one else is willing to make a prediction about the chance of the rocket exploding. And you really want that prediction. You know my calculations are useless, but so are any calculations you do yourself. 
Calculations you get a consultant to do aren't going to be any different, and they're going to know even less about the rocket. And gosh, don't my calculations look all scientific-y compared to your other neighbours? Did I tell you they've got a space program too, and they don't have envelopes with lots of calculations? Who are you going to trust, eh? Eh? Clearly I at least care about safety. Look how hard I've worked. Look at all the effort I've put into these calculations. And who knows, maybe there's some magic in those numbers that at least shows that my care about safety is going to translate into a better rocket. Maybe, in the process of trying to produce my risk calculations, I've thought hard about where the risk is coming from, I've thought about the uncertainty, and it's led me to better design and better testing, and overall a safer safer rocket program. So here's the bottom line. The smaller the risk, the greater the uncertainty in the risk calculations. For very safe systems, by which I mean anything with a risk less than around 10 to the minus 4, using units appropriate to the system, quantitative risk assessment can't really tell us anything more about the basic safety than we already know. That doesn't mean that quantitative risk assessment has to be automatically totally useless. There are a few things we can do, even with unreliable risk assessment. One of the things is we can use it as a minimum rather than a maximum. So instead of saying the system is safe because the risk assessment says so, we can say the system is only safe if the assumptions made by the risk assessment are true. So this turns it round. The risk assessment doesn't tell us it's safe. It tells us the assumptions, the things we've got to manage and control and monitor in order to look after safety. The second thing we can do is we can use the risk assessment as a guide to better design. We can compare two design options which use the same basic technology and judge which is safer. That's particularly good for redundancy and independent internal voting systems, where you can use the same components but in different internal configurations that give you different levels of protection depending on the failure mechanisms. The third thing we can do is to benefit from the side effects of trying to understand and resolve the uncertainty. When you put numbers to things, it causes you to think about them fairly deeply. And good engineers will end up simplifying, improving and rethinking their design approaches in response to risk quantification. The one thing we must never, ever do is to think that the risk assessment actually tells us something new about the real overall level of risk. Some colleagues and I published a study in 2012 called The Science and Superstition of Quantitative Risk Assessment. It looks at the weaknesses and criticisms of quantification and compares them to what people actually use risk assessment for. The depressing news is that while some people acknowledge the weaknesses and use QRA or PRA for design improvement and better through life safety management, The main thing numeric risk assessment is systematically used for is judging whether systems are safe enough. In other words, the one thing that it demonstrably cannot do is what it's most often used for. Here's a rule of thumb if you're producing a numeric risk assessment of your own, or if someone's giving you a risk assessment to make use of. Do you, personally, Know why every parameter of the quantitative tool, even the defaults, 
is set to that specific option. If you don't, then the numbers are meaningless and you can't trust them. And to prove that, simply watch the numbers go up or down as you tweak the preferences, the tool settings. And don't even get me started about what happens if you put very small numbers into a spreadsheet like Excel, which are optimised for financial calculations, and can't even reliably do the small number calculations needed for risk assessment. To finish, here's just a few numbers. The maximum resolution for a system risk assessment is around 10 to the minus 4 per hour, or one event for a year of continuous operation. That's a number that we can generate with reasonable amounts of testing, particularly if we do different types of accelerated testing, or if we build upon our early testing with more detailed in-service tests. That's 10 to the minus 4. Civil passenger jets run at around 10 to the minus 7 per flight hour, with an individual aircraft having an accident once every 4,000 years, or 4,000 aircraft having an accident once a year. So they achieve a level of safety well above what our techniques are really capable of measuring, which does raise some rather interesting questions about the usefulness and contribution of the measurement techniques. In civil aerospace, individual hazards are set targets of 10 to the minus 9, which is achievable as a level of risk, but it's ridiculous as a level of risk measurement. Safety researchers like to play a bit of a game with the most ridiculous claim they've ever encountered. My personal record is around 10 to the minus 30, but I've indirectly heard from other people of cases of 10 to the minus 44 and 10 to the minus 72. And yes, that second one does predict that the system is unlikely to fail before the heat death of the universe. And yes, the system had already failed at the time the risk assessment was made. Twice. If you're engaged in risk assessment, either as a producer or a consumer, it's worth getting up to speed on the many ways that risk assessment can go wrong. A good starting point might be our 2013 paper. Fixing the Cracks in the Crystal Ball, a maturity model for quantitative risk assessment. Basically, it's a guide for how to review risk assessments, starting by focusing on the more obvious errors, the more common ones that people make, and moving on to the more subtle mistakes to look for. Two episodes ago, I started a new feature that I probably forgot about the last episode, where I mention what I've been reading recently when it comes to safety. The latest arrival on my shelf is a copy of Seymour Hirsch, The Target is Destroyed. It's about the 1983 downing of Korean Airlines Flight 007. Believe it or not, I ordered it a few weeks ago to help me with an episode about real and imagined incidents where airliners has been, have been shot down by the military. Recent events have made that a little more topical than I intended, but it is coming up in an episode in a couple of weeks. I've also reread a pop science book by Joseph Hallinan called Why We Make Mistakes. If you're after an easily digestible overview of research into cognitive biases and why human error is a symptom rather than an explanation, then Why We Make Mistakes is a good choice. It's easy to read, it's chock full of real world examples, as well as fair summaries of lab experiments. I've also been reading the 400-odd page fault tree for the Deepwater Horizon Blowout Preventer. 
that's one on my recent reading list that I wouldn't recommend as either interesting or enlightening. The mere fact that it exists, though, says something about the role of safety analysis in the lead-up to accidents. The work we've been doing in that area is still being peer-reviewed, but I'll let you know when it's available for general reading. And that's it for this episode of DisasterCast. Shoutouts to Hope and Stuart for your recent comments and encouragement. Thanks also to those who came along to the Accident Tales talks at Teesside and Sheffield. Teesside was lots of fun. Sheffield's actually tonight at the time of recording, but I'm really looking forward to it. The next couple of weeks I'm going to be down in Brisbane doing some preparatory work for the Certificate in Safety Leadership that we're setting up to start next year. So if you're around in Brisbane and you'd like to catch up or hear more about the upcoming course, then send me an email. You can find details to contact me, as well as further information about this and other episodes, at disastercast.co.uk. Till next time, keep safe.